All of that being said, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the book of First Samuel. We're going to be in First Samuel chapter twelve or chapter seven today, um, and we're going to look at how well, we've been asking the question: How does God? How, how is God going to bring? Uh, his king to his people out of this conflict. And, and what I want to look at today is that um, the Lord is going to bring his king uh, eventually through revival, through repentance. And so we're going to look at how the Lord in his grace and, and through his kindness brings his people uh, to revival through their repentance. So I'm going to read the text in its entirety, starting in verse 2, pray, and then we will get to work. So here now, God's holy an inspired and life-giving word. Second, 1 Samuel 7, starting in verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord And serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said, There we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cries that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored, or the cities that the the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And as he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places, then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we read in this story about oppression against your people, about sin in and among your people, about idol worship in and among your people. And we see that you deliver them by your strong hand, mighty hand and outstretched arm, that your hand is indeed against the enemies of your people. But Father, we know that even within our own hearts, there is idol worship, there is sin, there is 
dark places that we cling to in our own uh, deep, dark, and twisted desires. And we ask, Lord, that by a powerful work of your Spirit, through the outward and ordinary means of your grace, through the preached and read word, the sacraments, that you would indeed grant us repentance unto life today. That by a powerful working of your spirit, we would be convicted of the sinfulness of our sin. And with grief and hatred of our sin, we would turn to you with the fullness of faith. And that we might find life afresh in you, Jesus. Lord, we know that without your spirit, these words are are nothing but, but sounds going out into the wind. So we ask that you would bury them deep in our hearts and our minds. So that we would indeed be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And Father, I pray especially this morning... For those who have sensitive and tender consciences, those who are struggling with deep, ongoing, repetitive, incessant sin, Lord, that you would indeed break the bonds of, of, of evil in their lives, that you would bring freedom and wholeness and light to where there is darkness, that you would impress upon the hearts and minds of this people today that there is hope in you because you are the living God who brings life and restoration through repentance to his people. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen. In 1732, in a small town in, uh, of, in Scotland, there was a coal mining accident. And um, there was this smoke and this, these noxious fumes that were arising from the coal mine. And there was a fire down there. And so all the men got out safely, but then they shut it up for a few weeks. And, and finally, a few weeks later, some men went down to investigate the damage. Um, they went down some 34 fathoms into the earth, uh, the, the eyewitness account said, um, and something happened. And two of the men came up, leaving their compatriot behind, and they left him for dead. But then two other men went down there to, to rest. Him and when they brought the man out, he was covered in coal dust. His eyes were were, were awake; they were open, but there was no breath in his lungs. There was no pulse in his body, and his body was cold. And so, as local surgeon one William Tossick gives us the first ever recorded instance of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation in a small town in Scotland. He, he put his mouth over James Blair, the man who had been left for dead by his friends. He put his mouth over James's mouth and breathed the breath of life into him, but he noticed that the air simply went out his nostrils. So then he did it again, but he pinched his nostrils and he breathed into the man and he felt something in his chest. And then he began compressing his chest a few more times and feeling that there was something going on, began rubbing his extremities, his hands, and his feet and his face to get the blood moving in his veins. And about 30 minutes later, James Blair, this man who had been left for dead, who was as good as dead, who had no signs of life, was resuscitated, was brought back, and went back down into the mine the next week to continue his work. How does life happen when there looks to be nothing but the evidence of death? How does revival happen when it looks like there is nothing going on? There are no signs of life. We see here in the beginning of 1 Samuel 7 that there is nothing but signs of death and lament, but yet the Lord in His gracious goodness and kindness brings revival to His people where there was certain spiritual death Through their repentance, the Lord brings life. So I want to look at two things as we examine this chapter today. The beginning of the revival of the people of Israel and the fruit of revival. 
and the people of Israel. And the first thing that I want to look at is the beginning of revival. Uh, we're going to see concern and contrition, but we're also going to see that revival continues in community. So we look in verse 2. Um, after the ark was removed from the cities of the Philistines, right? it lodged at a, pla- at a place called Kiriath-Jerim for about 20 years. And we, we get from the text that for 20 years the ark was there, and it seems that there was very little concern for the Lord. In fact, based on what Samuel says a few verses later, we can see that there was a lot of idol worship going on amongst the Israelites. You see, the ark left the presence of the Philistine god, Dagon, but again, the Philistines were good polytheists, and there were other gods uh, that would contend for the affection of the Israelites. And most clearly, we see in this text the god Baal, the Canaanite god of the storm, and the goddess Ashtoreth, which would have been the goddess of life and fertility. And so the picture that's kind of painted here in this very brief verse, verse 2, um, there's 20 years basically of, of synchristic worship or idol worship, worship blended with pagan gods and Yahweh. There was very little concern for always. But after this length of time, some 20 years, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, the word lament happens a lot in the Old Testament. In our English Bibles, when we read, we read it, it's all over. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole book called Lamentations, you know. But this particular structure of this particular word is not that same word that's all over the Old Testament. This word happens in, I think, two other places in, in, in two prophetic books. And there's a particularly potent and, and powerful way that it's constructed in the Hebrew that the author is telling us that there's a particularly potent and powerful sense of grief and loss that God's people are feeling. And so after several chapters of silence, Samuel, the prophet, the judge, the priest, speaks into that concern. He speaks into that contrition. And so where Israel was feeling bad about themselves, they were feeling bad about their sin. They were lamenting after the Lord. What does Samuel say to them? He doesn't say, it's okay. God loves you no matter what. Our God is a kind and indulgent grandpa in the sky. Just be a little bit better and it's all going to be okay. No. Samuel meets them in that lament, meets them in that concern, meets them in that contrition and confirms it. He says, if you are returning to the Lord, then put away the foreign gods and the Astroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only. The idea here is that repentance, if you're going to return to the, to the Lord with all your heart, if you're going to really experience this revival, revival, you have to turn away, repent, leave the foreign gods behind, and come back to the Lord with all your heart. Repentance will indeed bring revival. Now, kids, I want to I pause there. And if you heard um, our dear brother Ed pray, you heard that a lot of people were sick. And a lot of you have been sick before. So, kids, I want to know, how do you know when you're sick? Yeah, Anna. Your forehead starts getting hot. What about you, Leo? How do you know? You feel bad. Right, what about you, Amelia? Your throat gets sore. What else? How else we feel? Graham. You throw, oh yeah, that's the worst, you throw up. Yeah, what about you, um, Avery? Or, no, oh my gosh, yeah, you, yeah. Oh, your stomach starts hurting, that's the worst. What about you, Elsie? Oh, runny nose, oh, Margaret? Runny nose, all right, last one, Piper. 
your head hurts. You got all kinds of symptoms. Your tummy hurts, your throat hurts, your forehead gets hot. You just feel awful. These are symptoms that something is wrong in your body. There's a virus, there's bacteria, there's something wrong. Your body's not. And actually, those symptoms are usually your body working right to fight against the infection, against the bacteria, against the virus. And what we have here. At the beginning of First Samuel seven, is there is symptoms of spiritual sickness and sin. When Samuel says, "Put away the Baals and the Ashrots," he's quite literally saying, "Get rid of the sculptures. Get rid of of the, the the literal physical signs of idol worship in and among you. Destroy those things. Destroy those things and return to the Lord and serve Him with your heart." Only these foreign gods would have been antithetical to everything that Israel was supposed to be about as a spiritual nation. If you recall, in in Exodus twenty and twenty one, as Israel comes out of slavery in Egypt and they are brought to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gives them the Ten Commandments, the very first one is, "I am the Lord your God; you shall have no other gods before me." And then second and related to that is you shall not make for yourself a graven image of anything that flies in the heavens above or swims in the sea. You shall not make an image and bow down and worship it. These things that the Israelites had put in and among themselves were flaunting in the face of God, the God who rescued them, the God who who saved them, the God who redeemed them. And so repentance, in order for that repentance to bring revival, there had to be a turning away from those foreign gods, a displacement of the foreign gods, and their return to the Lord and the Lord alone. And so this repentance, in order to bring revival, had to include more than just feeling bad. They couldn't just lament. They couldn't just be concerned. They couldn't just be um, uh, contrite about their, their, their condition. They had to actually get rid of and walk away from the foreign gods as well. Because these foreign gods would have included all kinds of abhorrent pagan practices and rituals. Because it's not just the first two commandments they would have been breaking, although that's bad enough. They would have involved all kinds of debaucherous sexual relations. They would have included all kinds of other sacrifices um, of children, even occasionally. So to return to the Lord with all their heart, they couldn't just feel bad about that. They had to destroy those idols and turn away from those practices. Direct both your hearts and your behavior, verse 4, And the Lord will deliver you. Repentance will indeed bring revival. But that revival that breaks out in and among the house of Israel, that's never just an individual thing. In verse 2, we saw that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And then in verse 5, Samuel says to all the house of Israel, Gather at Mizpah. Go to this place where it had been a stronghold in previous places in Israelite history after certain defeats. There was, a, there was an altar there where uh, it would have been known among the Israelites as a place of worship. Gather together there, all the house of Israel, and look what they do. They draw water and they pour it out before the Lord. We know from the sacrament, the outward ordinary sign of, 
of baptism, that water throughout the whole Bible is symbolic of, of cleansing, of purification. So here, Israel is spiritually, and in, 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 uh, the image there is of being washed and purified. Ezekiel, in the, the book, Ezekiel chapter 36, the prophecy is about having clean water sprinkled on your hearts, and you'll be cleansed from all your uncleanness. And so Israel is being cleansed, as it were, before the Lord. And they, they fast together as a community. That We know that, that fasting is this embodiment of lament, this purposeful withholding of food to say that I depend on you, Lord, alone and that I will withhold pleasure from myself because I am so sorry for my sin. That was a consistent practice in the history of Israel. So they're being purified, as it were, by the water. They're physically expressing laments and they're fasting and they are confessing their sins to the Lord. I want you to hear the echoes of Psalm 51 here. When David says, I have sinned against you and you alone. I'm sure the Israelites sinned against each other when they were involved in these pagan practices. But here we see that the offense is first and foremost and primarily against God. And they are confessing their sin to a God who hears them. And so they are doing that corporately and collectively. They are, as it were, they are not just talking about repentance they are being about repentance. We know from the Apostle John in, in 1 John chapter 3, where he says, Little children, let us not just love in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. So Israel, as they are here at Mizpah, they are not repenting in word and talk. They are repenting in deed and in truth. And so for you and for I, who aren't gathered at Mizpah, we're gathered at South Middle School, who don't have to draw out water and pour it, who aren't fasting necessarily, how do we then experience the same repentance? How do we, in turn, leave our sin behind and turn toward our God in faith? And the first thing that I think we have to wrestle with as people in 2024 is that we cannot ignore or waste our pain. How many of you who are married have had a fight with your spouse and somebody storms off and the first thing you do is whip out your phone and you start reading something or you start watching one of those apps that sends you short 60 second videos and you just scroll through mindlessly? How many of you have had a, a bad day at work can come home and just been so, just the first thing you do is you pour three fingers of scotch? And you're just like, I have a bad day, i gotta, I got to unwind. But those three fingers turn into another glass and another glass, and all you're doing is you're just, you feel so bad that you've got to wash that away. Or mom, maybe you have a, a hard day parenting the kids, and you're just like, I'm going to do a little retail therapy. And you get on Amazon, and you just start buying stuff, because gosh, it feels good to get new things. We are so quick and so prone to ignore our pain. We exist in a therapeutic culture that doesn't want to deal with pain. We want to minimize that pain. And so instead of taking our pain and experiencing what the Apostle Paul calls a godly grief that moves us to repentance, it is so easy for us to do what C.S. Lewis says and fool around with food and sex and drink and just numb our pain by whatever means that we have conveniently there. We are so quick to run away and not run into that pain that God gifts to us. Our pain, in many ways, is a gift that God gives to us, that something is not right. 
It's okay to talk about how you are in pain. It's okay to talk about how your sin caused you pain. It's okay for somebody to say to you, your sin caused me pain. And we should take that and not run away from that and not numb that with created things, but run to our Father who promises that with repentance there will be revival. We cannot numb our pain or ignore our sin. But we also, at the same time, brothers and sisters, we have to learn, and I can't tell you how to do this right now. I just know that we have to do it. We have to learn to discern between, on the one hand, a godly grief that does indeed produce repentance and a deeply unhelpful shame that comes from the pits of hell that says you cannot get out of this. There's a good thing with a godly grief that moves you to repentance, but there is such a thing, and the enemy will use this to to keep you trapped. There is such a thing as an ungodly grief that produces an ungodly shame that says God won't forgive you this time. If you tell anybody about this, your life is over. There's a a shame that keeps you trapped, and, and we can't allow ourselves to stay there. We have to run to our Father. We have to run to our brothers and sisters, confessing not just to God, but to our brothers and sisters who can tell us. Not because we need a priest, because we have a great high priest in Jesus, but we have brothers and sisters that can love us and say, you are forgiven and delighted in by the Father. Repentance brings revival. Confession brings restoration. We cannot run away from that. We have to run into that. Never, never, never sit and wallow and stay in your guilt and your grief and your shame. I have said this before in a sermon and I will say it a million times. Robert Murray McShane says, for every one look at your sin, you take ten looks at your crucified Savior on the cross, knowing that for all the weight of your guilt and shame, He was hung there for you. And if you believe in Him, you will indeed find that rest and revival for your souls. And so don't stay isolated. Don't stay locked up. Brothers and sisters, we have to do what the the writer of Hebrews says. We need to love one another and stir one another up to good works. Why? Because sin is deceitful. And it's there. And we need help repenting. So help each other repent. Help each other to love better. And encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the beginning of revival that the Lord brings is this contrition, this concern that leads to corporate confession and acknowledgement of sin. But it continues to grow. There is fruit that grows out of that. And the first thing that we see in verse 7 is that there is indeed deliverance from the enemies. There is deliverance from oppression by dependence on Yahweh. Samuel's judging the people at Mizpah. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. My goodness, the kingdom of darkness will always oppose the kingdom of light. There will always be evil that seeks to undo what God is doing. And the lords of the Philistines, that great pagan nation, they hear that Israel's gathered at Mizpah, which means watchtower. They could have thought that Israel was having a military uprising. And so they say, we have to go uh, contend with them. We have, to, uh, we have to fight them. So they rose up and gathered against Israel. Now, kids, one more question. I asked you earlier, how do you know that you're sick? And you gave me a great list of symptoms. You know, headache, fever, your tummy hurts, you maybe you get a little vomiting. What do you do when you're sick? Because you don't just hang out and feel bad, right? What do you do, Anna? What do you do? 
You watch TV. That is a, a great example of what I just said earlier. Um, uh, Calvin, what about you, buddy? You, you stay in bed? Facts. I love that. What else do we do? Margaret, what do you do? Water. Water. Oh, you've got to stay hydrated when you're, when you're sick. I feel that. Piper. You read if you can. All right. Do we do anything else? Uh, Aaron, what do you do, buddy? You eat healthy. Food is either the best medicine or the worst poison that we can put in our body, Aaron. I hear that. Um, one more. Graham, what do you do? You rest. You rest. Okay. Um, Leo, I'm going to you because I, I haven't heard what I really want to hear yet. Uh, that's okay. I hope. Yeah, Mom. Oh, don't. Look, that's not what we're here to do. <laughs> we're not here to just put me on blast and what I do when I'm sick. So we usually we take medicine, right? Maybe moms or dads, you, give, you go to the doctor and you get a medicine. You have something that's going to help fight those symptoms. Your head hurts, you take some Tylenol. Your, your stomach hurts, maybe you get some Zofran for being nauseous. Um, you have high blood pressure, you take amlodipine and benazepril. Um, you know, when you're sick, you have medicine that helps you deal with the symptoms. But it's not just the symptoms, right? You don't ever just want to deal with symptoms. You want to work to get to the underlying cause of the issue that's going on, which is why healthy food, water, and rest are also very, very important. And so we see here, when the lords of the Philistines gathered up against Israel at Mizpah, we see a symptom a similar symptom of spiritual sickness that Israel had regularly regularly engaged in. They were afraid. They saw the enemy gathered against them, arrayed against them in all their military power, and they were afraid. That is not unreasonable. But what they do in chapter 7 is so different than what they do in chapter 4, the last time the Philistines raised up against them. In chapter 4, they said, go get the ark. Maybe it'll save us from the Philistines. And instead, in chapter 7, of doing what Dale Ralph Davis calls trusting in Yahweh's furniture, Israel, in a stroke of beautiful repentance, trusts in Yahweh himself. They go to their priest, judge, leader, Samuel, and they say, Do not stop interceding to Yahweh for us. And so Samuel prayed to the Lord and worshipped. This flies in the face of most evangelicals because Samuel is faced with a crisis of leadership. He's faced with a problem. His people are afraid. There is an issue at hand. And again, look at what Samuel doesn't do. He doesn't um, find best practices. He doesn't find the most strategic way to address the issue. He doesn't say, hey, we're on high ground. We're okay from a military strategy standpoint. No, this man takes a young lamb whole burnt offering, and this God-ordained leader of Israel worships before the Lord. The most practical thing we can do as people who are learning to repent is worship the Lord. I don't want, look, I don't want to minimize, well, I'll get there. And, and what we see here, what I want you to draw to your attention is that there's this beautiful parallel in the Hebrew language that the author is bringing to our attention. I'm not saying this because you need to be a Hebrew scholar to understand this, but I'm saying that I want to show you what, this, what the original author is trying to draw out and draw our attention to. In chapter 4, the Philistines draw near. 
In chapter 4, there's manipulation. In chapter 7, the Philistines draw near, there's repentance. In chapter 4, somebody is struck down. In chapter 4, that's the Israelites. In chapter 7, the Lord answers in the thunder, and the Philistines are routed as far as Beth Car. In chapter 4, the end result of the battle is a baby is born, and that baby is given the name Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel because Israel was routed and defeated. And the result of chapter 7, it is no longer Ichabod, but it is a stone of help, Ebenezer, that says, Hitherto the Lord has helped us. What the author is drawing to our attention is that the idols of our hands... When we trust in a created thing like a beautiful wooden box overlaid with gold, or the, the, the weak, useless, ineffective pagan idols of a nation like the Philistines, those things are powerless in the face of the living God who made the heavens and the earth. It is exactly what we heard in our call to worship. The idols of the nation are nothing. They have eyes, but they don't see They have noses, but don't smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not move. The idols of the nations and the idols of my hands and of your hands are of no avail to deal with our sin. Only the living God. And so the implication here is that the living God in his grace and our mercy is sufficient to save you. You're going to be tempted to want to do a bunch of things. You're going to be tempted to want to do a bunch of different programs. And I, and I don't want to minimize counseling. I don't want to minimize um, medicine. I don't want to minimize if, if, you know, if you're dealing with some levels of addiction. I don't want to minimize the, the common grace things that God has given us to help fight that stuff. I'm not minimizing that at all. But again, what Samuel does in the face of fear for his people is he slaughters a whole burnt offering and he worships. Brothers and sisters, the living God of the universe will save you, will deliver you. Repentance brings revival. He has promised this to us in his word. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do what you need to do. Take the medicine you need to take. Talk to the people you need to talk to. Do the programs that you need to do. But if you are stuck in a deep and abiding cycle of sin, the Lord will deliver you. The Lord will deliver you. And not only that, the Lord has put brothers and sisters in your life upon whom you can depend. The Lord has put brothers and sisters in your life who will walk with you in the midst of your sin who will encourage you, who will hold you accountable, who will speak words of life and truth, and who will help you stop your ears from the lies that come from the pits of hell that say that you're trapped or you're hopeless. I want you to hear the words the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You're not an old creation. You're not who you used to be. If you're in Christ, you're new. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. That's past tense. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Such were some of you because repentance every single day brings revival and renewal. There is no shortage of God's promises that say you will be perfect. It might not be until glory, and that's okay. 
And it might be a long road until then. But God, there is no such thing as Ichabod anymore. It is only Ebenezer. God and his glory have not forsaken you. You are you belong to Yahweh because of Jesus. And so because of that, there is only Ebenezer. There is no more Ichabod. And so we see that as God's people repent and are delivered from their enemy, we see this dedication to Yahweh, this dedication of and to Yahweh. Samuel sets up the Ebenezer memorial stone. I really wanted to sing, Come Thou Fount today, because it has that line, Here I Raise My Ebenezer, but we just sang it like two weeks ago. Um, so that was, a, that was my fault. Uh, I missed an opportunity there. But Samuel sets up this stone. And I don't know how big it is. In my mind, it's gigantic, but we don't really know. But it is this tangible, physical reminder that hitherto, Yahweh has not left us. Yahweh has not forsaken us. Yahweh has helped us. He sets up this physical reminder that just as God has helped us in the past, surely God's hand will help us in the future. And then we see that played out. Because we see in verse 13, the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Yahweh, in his grace and his kindness, does not stop helping his people. He brings protection. He brings restoration to the the territory that they had lost. And he brings blessing because repentance brings restoration. So there's a physical commemoration of that. But it's not just that Yahweh is commemorated. It's not just that, all right, they set up a rock and we look at it and we remember that God did something. We see that there's, all this, there's also this dedication to um, the work that Yahweh has given the people. Samuel, at the very end, we see this summary of his life and his ministry in chapter, or verse 16, verse 15. Samuel judged... Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, to Gilgal, and to Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and he also judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. When you and I hear that word judge, we think about somebody being uh, judgmental, critiquing us. We think about somebody being declared guilty by a judge. But when we read this, just as we read it in in verse 5, when Samuel is judging Israel, he's not just settling legal disputes. He's teaching. He's admonishing. He's encouraging. He's he's doing the work of a pastor. Um, He's going around and he's God's representative. And so we see in a time, in the days when the judges ruled and everyone did what was right in in their own eyes because there was no king in those days, we see Samuel under his leadership, a commitment to the regular and ordinary ordinances that God has given his people to ordinary worship at Bethel, at Gilgal, at Ramah. We see a commitment to the teaching of Yahweh, and we see this routine uh, over and over and over again. And so what I want to, to draw out of this from you is that when we talk about revival, when we talk about restoration that happens through repentance, sometimes that is in massive, spectacular, incredible ways when God does this amazing, incredible work. But it also happens in the ordinary and the regular and the mundane. 
the things that you maybe don't think about, the things that you take for granted when you week by week come to church, when you day by day read God's word, when you day by day uh, engage with Christian brothers and sisters, when you day by day repent of your own sin and confess your sin to God or to whoever else needs to hear it. When we think about repentance and the revival that comes from it, we need to start thinking yeah, God does big things, but it's okay that God often does work in small and almost unnoticed ways. And we need Ebenezer's to remind us that both things are true. That's why we had in the confession of faith today a reminder that, yeah, repentance uh, is a saving grace whereby a person out of the sense of his own sin turns from it with grief and hatred and turns to God. Yeah, that sounds like a big one-time thing. But then the outward and ordinary means that God communicates that to us is through the regular ordinances, the preaching of the word, the reading of the word. The reason why we take communion every single week is not because it's not magic, but it's that regular, ordinary thing that God communicates His grace to us through. And it's not just a mere memorial, so we don't have to worry about it getting stale. But it's a real, tangible Ebenezer where God physically sets up in our midst a reminder that He loves us. Ichabod is no longer the story, but rather Ebenezer. Our God is here and is helping us by His grace through our faith. And so... I would encourage you, one incredible implication is that when you are feeling that pain, when you are feeling that grief, when you are feeling that need for revival, I want to encourage you to do two things. One, I want you to learn to thank God for that. Because sometimes our pain is a gift that He gives us to remind us that we need to repent and turn to Him. But also at the same time, it is so helpful to even physically write down those gifts of grace that God has given you. It's a really hard time to be grumpy and annoyed and frustrated when you are just soaking in the goodness that God has given you. And you can be really spiritual about it and talk about all the spiritual blessings, but you can also say, I'm thankful for my wife that sometimes makes my favorite meal, that she gives me popsicles when I'm sick. I can be thankful that I have beautiful children that God has given me. I can be thankful that I have a wonderful campus ministry that I'm a part of. I am thankful that I have friends that love me and encourage me. I'm thankful that I have people to call and talk to. I'm thankful that there's good pizza to eat in Morgan. God has given us a bevy of good gifts. And it is right and it is good and it is a practice of discipleship to remind yourself of those things when you are tempted to despair. And it's not that I'm saying if you think about the good pizza that God has given you, that that's the ticket to repentance and revival. What I'm saying is it is okay to think about the beautiful and the good things that God has blessed you with. And in that, look to not just the created things, but to the author of that creation himself. The one who is made and who is formed and who is given all of these good gifts. And I want you to hear something right now because I think it would be easy to get this twisted. I want you to remember that repentance is not a work that you muster up by your own strength. It is very easy to look at this story and go, oh my gosh, I could never be as strong as the Israelites. I could, I could, never, I could never be so strong. I, can't, I just can't do it. I don't want to do it. I'm bad at it. I don't feel like doing it. I don't have an inclination to want to. And so I am not saying at all in this sermon that repentance is this bootstrap theology that you have to muster up and say, i got to repent and get right with God. Because remember, James, 
Blair was carried by his friends out of a pit and was laid on the ground, left for dead. Another man breathed his life back into him and compressed his chest and got his blood moving again. James Blair is a picture of what we are in our sin. That we are dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. Without the Spirit of God in us, there is no desire for repentance. Even when we are struggling with sin as believers, there can be a difficulty in maintaining a desire for repentance. But think about this picture. The Lord God formed our first father, Adam, from the dust of the earth and breathed the breath of life in his nostrils. Ezekiel prophesied over a valley of dry bones and as he prophesied and spoke the word of God to them a breath of God came in and formed living bodies when our second Adam came our Messiah Jesus came he said if you are born again by the water and the spirit of God you will be brought into the kingdom of God the picture that the Bible gives us is that God's spirit flows into us By grace, when we put our faith in Christ, that Spirit of God flows into us, and we are given the ability and the opportunity to repent and experience that revival again and again and again. The reformer Martin Luther, when he wrote his 95 theses, he wrote in the first one, when the Lord Jesus said, Repent, he was willing that all of life would be one of repentance. So, brothers and sisters, repentance is not this work that you do to make God love you and to get God's blessing. Repentance is the lifeline that God gives us by the power of his spirit, that you would be formed by his spirit, that you would be walking in the power of his spirit, that you would be aware of your own sin, that you would be growing in righteousness, that you would be growing in hatred for your sin, that you would be growing in hatred for your idols, that you would be growing in the sweetness of fellowship with our God and Savior, the one who brings revival through repentance by the breath of his very own life and at the cost of his very own son. This is what our God did for you because Ichabod is not our story anymore. It's only Ebenezer. And our God, by his spirit, helps us to repent because we have a great high priest who even now, even now is interceding for you. The Spirit Himself is interceding for you with groans too deep for words. And so you need to know, Christian, right now, that your God has not left you. Your God is calling you right now to repentance through which you will experience the sweetest revival that you can imagine. Brothers and sisters, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, every good and perfect gift comes from you. Every element of life that we have comes from you because you are indeed the author of life. Lord, we know that with the Apostle Paul, we can say for certain that in you we live and move and have our being. And so, Father, we ask that even now you would move in us to repent and experience afresh the goodness of grace that we have in Christ. Lord, that you would rip the idols from our hearts and minds, that we would know that the idols of our own hands are are worthless to save. Lord, forgive us for how we've ignored our pain and wasted our pain and have not sat in our pain and used that to repent and return to you. Father, forgive us for how numb we prefer to be. Forgive us for how quick we are to distract ourselves. Father, give us a generous measure of your spirit this morning that we might walk in your power and experience the life that you promised us in Christ, fullness and abundantly. 
We love you, Jesus, and we pray this all in your holy and powerful name. Amen.